You're listening to the Core Life Training. What is it? Core Life Training Podcast. Of course it is. With Jeff Olson. Hey, what's up, my friends? This is Jeff with the Core Life Training Podcast, where we help you know the Bible better so you can know and love God more. Welcome to episode number 24. All right, dig it. It is the Saturday before the second Sunday in Advent, and you know we are looking at the Advent season. It's the season of four Sundays leading up to Christmas time. It's a season of hope and expectation where we prepare our hearts to celebrate the coming of Christ, His birth on the very first Christmas. That's why we're looking at the Advent season here on the Core Life Training Podcast. Typically, there's an Advent wreath with four candles involved, and you light one candle every Sunday. In our last episode, we looked at the first candle, and in the tradition of where I come from, that's the prophecy candle. And that candle reminds us that faithful believers, generations, not many, but a few, there were a few, who waited generation after generation with hope and expectation for God to fulfill His promise to send His King in the last day, a Savior that would deliver His people from their sins. That's the prophecy candle that we looked at last week. This week, I want to look at the second candle the Bethlehem candle. That candle teaches us that Christ came humbly to save the world, and Christ as a humble servant king serves as an example for all of us who call him king and all of us who are waiting expectantly for him and celebrating his birth at Christmas time. So why don't you grab a Bible, grab your notebook and your drink of choice, and let's get down to business. All right, you guys, as you think about the story of the Old Testament, the primary plot line traces God's promise. And if you've taken my course, The Story of the Old Testament, or if you've happened to have bought my book, The King Will Come, I trace this plotline all the way through the story of the Old Testament. And here's how the story goes. God makes a promise that in the last days, he would send a king who would rule over all the earth. He would rule over all the nations. He would bring justice and righteousness to the nations. Ultimately, he would save his people from their sins. He would die as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And in the end, this king would be a blessing to all the nations. All the nations could be welcomed into God's kingdom through faith in this king. Now, that's the storyline of the Old Testament. And as we pick up the story in the New Testament, the time for God to fulfill that promise is at hand. And you would think, and I want you to think about this just a little bit, you would think When the time came for God to send the king, the king who would rule over all the earth and save his people from their sins, you would think in that moment that God would send like the baddest dude that you can think of, like the coolest, awesomest, toughest, studliest, uh, just the baddest dude you could think of. You'd think that God would send the king with like, uh, I don't know, like quaking mountains and like thunder and lightning, and like an army of angels, and all those kinds of things. And you would think, I mean, just think about the arrival of a king. You would think that king would maybe show up, I don't know, to like the capital city of somewhere, right? At least I don't care what country it is. Maybe just show up to the capital city. You would maybe expect a king to show up at a place like a palace, where there might be a throne, and ultimately like royalty from all over the earth, like uh, dignitaries and government officials and important people from all the nations would show up and welcome this king who comes in the last day. Instead, when God chose to fulfill his promise of a king who would come in the last day, God didn't choose any of those things. 
God actually chose a little town called Bethlehem. Let me read from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the, of the house of the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while we were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. God chose when he chose to fulfill his promise to send a king who would come in the last day. God chose that the king would not come as the baddest guy in the world. He would come as a baby. And he wouldn't come to a palace or a throne room. He would come to a stable. And there was really no nobility. There was no honor. There was no fanfare. There was no news coverage, no streaming of this event, right? No live coverage, no uh, reality TV show, no pay-per-view, no, no nothing when God sent the king into the world. This is exactly the opposite way you would imagine an important person would show up. In fact, he came without any of the signs that we take to mean someone important has arrived. It was definitely a lowly and humble way for the king to come into the world, right? Not what we would expect. And as he grew up, he stayed lowly and he stayed humble, right? It's not like he was just born that way and then later became arrogant and proud, became self-important, became a big shot because he was the king or anything like that. The prophet Isaiah said that there really was no majesty that was found in him. This is from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 to 3. The prophet says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 2, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. The he that grew up is the king who would come in the last day as a servant to take the sins of his people. He grew up before him, that is, the king grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. And he had no stately form or majesty that we should look on him, nor an appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Not exactly the way that you would imagine a king would come into the earth. This is how God chose to fulfill his promise. He was born humble, born lowly, and he stayed lowly and humble as he grew up. And in his own day and in his own hometown, the king, Jesus, was looked down on. Like people didn't appreciate him. People weren't stoked about him. People weren't paying a lot of attention to him. And what attention he was getting paid was mostly negative. This is Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 to 57. Jesus came to his hometown and he began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where does this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? That word astonished there in verse 54 typically means people don't get it. Typically, when we think of the word astonished in English, we think like people are amazed and that something awesome is going on, like a guy that's on a high wire on a unicycle that can juggle, right? Like that's astonishing. It's amazing. That's really not what this word means in Greek right here. The author is using this word to characterize the crowds and the leaders, and oftentimes even the disciples, especially in the Gospel of Mark, 
as people who are astonished or amazed. And by that, he means they don't really understand what's going on with Jesus. So you can see that here in their question, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? They were astonished and they didn't get him. And then they asked in verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Like, who does this guy think he is? He's just the carpenter's son. He's no king. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they, are they not all with us? Where, did, uh, where then did this man get all these things? Right? So they don't understand. They're astonished. They don't get it. In verse 57, it's even worse. Not only did they not get it, they took offense. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he didn't do many miracles there because of their unbelief, right? He was looked down on. People didn't understand him. In fact, not only did they not understand, they despised him even in his own town. And when it came time for the king to make his big move as king, right? You think making your big move as king is to set up shop in the capital city, to move your army in, to rearrange the government, to set up new laws, right? To make alliances and treaties, whatever you would think a king would do as their big move. Uh, That's not how Jesus did it as king. His big move as a king uh, was really not to set up a rule and authority, at least not yet. His first big move as a king was to save his people from their sins. That is to suffer the humiliation, to humbly go to the cross. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't say, look, I'm God, I'm the king. Everybody bow down, get your acts together, come worship and honor me. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This was Jesus' first big move as king, is to suffer the humiliation of the cross so that he could pay the penalty for the sins of his people and ultimately deliver them forgiveness for their sins. So the Bethlehem candle reminds us that Jesus, the king that we celebrate here at Christmas time, he didn't come in glory and with power. He came to bless the world and, and ultimately save the world through humility and service. So what about us? What does this remind us of about our own lives, right? If Jesus, our King, who we celebrate at Christmas time, came this way, what about us? The Bethlehem candle reminds us that we who call Jesus King are to bless the world as well, right? We're to be like Christ and bless the world just the way Jesus did it, not by force and not with power, right? If only we win all the elections, And if only we get all of our laws passed, and if only the whole world would do things the way we want, then everything would be okay. No, that's not the way we come to bless the world. We bless the world like Jesus with humility and service. And how do I know that we're supposed to do that? Uh, Let's look back at Philippians chapter 2, and we'll look at verses 3 to 5. Paul says to believers in Jesus, people who follow and worship the King, do nothing from selfishness. Zero things. I don't, I don't like this part at all. Do no things from selfishness or empty conceit. There's, here's the humility part. We're going to talk about the humility part first and then the service part next. Here's the humility part. Do nothing from selfishness. Selfishness is just the attitude that I'm the center of the universe, right? I'm the center of the world here. 
and the fullness of the world and the universe, the sun, the moon, the stars, all the people, all the things are here to serve my needs. Now, listen, that can be super blatant, right? Usually when we're little kids, that idea that I'm the center of the universe is pretty blatant and obvious. When Riley, my oldest, was first born, my sister Marcy bought her a little, uh, like a stuffed bunny. And when you pulled the tail of this bunny and let it go, uh, it would wind up and it would play some music. And from the time she was born until, man, way late in her life, Bunny was Riley's favorite. And you didn't mess with Bunny. She slept with it every night. And uh, Dad accidentally broke it one night when I tried to pull it and wind it up to play the music. Bad Dad, for sure. But Riley loved her Bunny. And I remember one time, uh, Evan, when he was just a little toddler, he would come toddling around and uh, he wanted to see the bunny. And I remember Riley just saying blatantly and out loud, I will never share my bunny. I'll never share my bunny. Why? Because the bunny's mine and I'm the important person here. And I don't care if Evan wants to see it. And I don't care if it would make Evan happy to see it. Bunny's mine. Bunny's here to make me happy. Evan is not here to make me happy. So Evan, just toddle on right down the hallway. Thank you very much. So that idea of selfishness is pretty blatant when we're young, right? And if you have kids, uh, if you have nieces, nephews, like just all you have to do is look around at little ones and you see this right away. They are the center of the world. As adults, we just socialize that attitude a little bit better, right? We're not nearly as blatant, although we feel the same way, right? We're always looking to align ourselves with someone who will make us feel better. You know, we get around people that will... Uh, prop up our ego, uh, make sure that we have a good time, make sure that we're happy, make sure that we're getting ahead. Uh, Oftentimes we'll, I don't know, gossip about people so that the person we're gossiping to will like the person that we're gossiping about less and like us more, right? To put ourselves in a good light, right? We'll show up late uh, after dinner time so that the dishes are already done so that I don't have to do them. Not that that ever happens or anything like that, right? As adults, we've learned to socialize our selfishness. But listen, man, we all walk into the room. We all look around. And at the heart of it, we're all asking this question, how can you all in this room and how can the things that are happening in this room and how can the things that are happening in the world make my life better? Paul says, let that go. Do nothing from selfishness. Right When Jesus showed up, he showed up humbly. He didn't show up as the center of all things, even though he actually was the center of all things. And we're meant to imitate him with humility in the world around us, not selfishness. So do nothing from selfishness, or Paul says, from empty conceit. What is empty conceit? It's just a wrong view of our place and our value in the universe, right? It just means we think more of ourselves then we probably ought to think. I think there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people that are like me, and there are people that definitely should be like me, right? Generally speaking, we all walk into a room, and we ourselves are sort of the measure of the thing. So we look around the room, and if you uh, agree with me, and you think like me, and you do the kinds of things I want you to do, and you do them the way I like you to do them, guess what? You move up on the scale, And if you disagree with me and um, you're not doing things the way I would want you to do them or the things that I like for you to do, guess what? You move down on the scale. And what's common in all of that is that we and our point of view and our desires and our wants and our values are the center of that scale. 
So if you don't like it like I like it, or if you don't see it the way I see it, or if you don't value it the way I value it, or do it the way I do it, you're an idiot. And all of us essentially think that way. By nature, we have a wrong conception, right, of our place and our value in the universe. Now look at what uh, the rest of verse 3 and verse 4 say. Paul says, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. It doesn't mean that somebody else is intrinsically more important than you, but it's a mindset of valuing somebody as more important than you. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, that's selfishness and conceit, but also for the interests of others. Now, Paul's not advocating fake humility, where we're still selfish and conceited and we just sort of pretend to give a rip about other people. Although just pretending to give a rip about other people and acting like you give a rip about other people is probably better than not, right? So he's not advocating like fake humility. He's also not advocating bad self-esteem or thinking poorly of yourself. All he's advocating is a mindset. And here's the mindset. I don't have to be the most important person in the room. You can be the most important person in the room. I don't have to serve my own needs and you're not here to serve my needs. I'm actually here to serve yours. And this is what verse four says. This is the serving part. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but look out for the interests of others. Humility and serving is the way that we're meant to bless the world, just like Jesus did. And I'm going to be honest with you. Our culture does not expect Christians to bless the world through humble service. What does the world expect Christians to do towards the world around them? I mean, generally speaking, I think the world thinks that really what we're here to do is try to tell people how to live. We're trying to boss everybody around, trying to tell them how to live their life, what they can and can't do. Probably we're trying to tell them not to have any fun or anything like that for sure. They're definitely not expecting us to come and bless them through humble service. They're expecting us for sure in these uh, last days that we've been in politically uh, they're expecting us to align with a political leader. doesn't matter how ungodly or unbiblical that leader is. They expect us to support uh, the policies of that leader, regardless of how ungodly and unbiblical they are. They expect us to then explain that somehow God is into that leader and God is for that leader, and this is God's chosen leader. They expect us to be mean. They expect us to vote against them, right? They expect us to exclude people rather than include people. These are the types of things that Christians are known for now. And this is probably doesn't describe you or anybody in your church, but this is the way the world views Christians, evangelical Christians, conservative Christians. And guess what? You get lumped in with all that, whether you believe any of that stuff or don't. This is just what they're expecting from us. They're not expecting a people on a mission to bless the world around them by serving the needs and humbly giving of themselves to the world that they're in. They don't expect that, but Jesus does. That we would walk into our real world the way Jesus came into our real world, humbly looking to bless the world through humble, self-sacrificial service. The Bethlehem candle would remind us to take Jesus' own mindset the way Philippians chapter 2 tells us to take Jesus' mindset, right? As we walk into our world, the people that we're with, the places we go, we would take a humble attitude of service and say, I'm here for you, not me. I'm here to serve your needs, not mine. And I'll get taken care of by giving myself away. This is ultimately the way Jesus came into the world. And the Bethlehem candle reminds us that we also, as followers of the King, 
ought to come into our world to bless the world the same way. And listen, humility and service take faith. They take a lot of trust on our part. Because if I'm walking into my world saying, I'm here for you, not me, and I'll get by giving, well, then who's going to take care of me? Humble service like Christ is scary, right? I have to trust that on the other end, there's going to be somebody there to take care of me. And God knows I can't rely on you and you can't rely on me. But what does scripture tell us? Scripture tells us that God will take care of us, right? God will take care of our needs. Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. It doesn't feel better to give than to receive. I mean, as I told you last week, receiving gifts is 100% my love language, right? It never feels better to give. It never feels better to look out for somebody else. It always feels better to make myself the center of the room. But Jesus says it is better to come humbly and to give myself away as a servant. And my job is to trust Christ and say, I'll trust you. That doesn't feel like the good thing, but you say it is. So I'm going to trust you and I'm going to be like you. I'm going to be a humble servant the way you came into the world. I'm going to be a humble servant to the world around me. So what does that mean for us? Well, I don't know. Uh, We may start with repentance and saying, Lord, I'm sorry for the times I walk into a room and just by instinct, I'm looking to have my needs taken care of. I'm failing to look out for other people around me. I'm failing to humbly serve the people in my world. Lord, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Paul says in Philippians 2, we're to have the attitude of Christ of humble, self-sacrificial service so we could pray, not only repent, but we could pray, God, give me this attitude. Give me this attitude. Give me this attitude because it doesn't come naturally. And maybe you might pick up the scriptures again, maybe read back through Isaiah chapter 53, how the king that God sent came humbly to give his life in the sacrifice for the sins of his people. Maybe read the Christmas story again, these passages where Christ is born in Bethlehem. He's born a humble servant, not a stately king the way that you would expect. All right, there is the theme of the Bethlehem candle. Jesus came humbly to serve the world, and we as his followers ought to come into our world the same way. Dig it. Thank you guys for checking out this episode of the Core Life Training Podcast. Next week, we are going to be looking at the shepherd's candle, the third week in Advent, the shepherd's candle. If you want to read ahead, you can read about the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20. That's where we're going to be looking this next week as we get ready to celebrate Christmas time. I hope you guys are having a great Christmas season. Hope it's not too stressful. I pray your shopping is all done. But ultimately, I pray your heart is being prepared to know Jesus better and to love Jesus more through this holiday season. All right, you know that uh, after the break, if you're into it, I have a Christmas medal moment for you and a drink of choice. So stick around if you're into that. My name is Jeff Olson. I teach the Bible, and I will check you later. Right on, man. If you are sticking around for the drink of choice and the metal moment, thank you for doing that. I'm glad to have you here. This episode's drink of choice is one of my all-time, all-time favorites. It's called Huge Arker from Anderson Valley uh, Brewing Company out of Boonville, California. I know that I say this is one of my top five all-time imperial stouts ever about 700 times in a year. I have at least 27 top five imperial stouts. I know that. But this is legitimately one of my top five, top five imperial stouts of all time. 
Uh, let me just read the description. I, I love beer descriptions. Let me read the description for you. Quote, this beer is actually illegal in seven states. <laughs> the Huge Archer is a rich and complex beer aged in bourbon barrels for a minimum of 12 months until it fully matures. I love mature beers. This extended barrel aging technique allows us to create a nuanced, smooth, and surprisingly very drinkable beverage. Oh, it's very drinkable, all right. I, I no doubt about that. It has an aroma that conveys a deep roasted malt backbone, burnished oak, candy sugar, bourbon, and hearth-baked bread. <laughs> I don't know about the hearth-baked bread part of that. Uh, on the palate, the beer brings nuanced and integrated layers of honey, molasses, and rich dark chocolate, finishing with hints of coffee, vanilla, and dark fruits. The Huge Arker is absolutely an experience that is something to take some time with and savor. Yeah, you definitely don't want to be pounding this stuff down. Uh, it's got a 15.5 ABV, so you want to be sipping rather than downing. For anyone who's into big, complex beers, this one should not be missed. Couldn't agree with that more, man. This is one of my all-time favorites. Huge Arker from Anderson Valley out of Boonville, California. Check it out. Grab it. If you can, it's in 12-ounce cans right now, which totally rules. That's just the right amount. Man, when you get a 22-ounce bottle, that's way too much for one sitting, but a 12-ounce can is perfect. So there's this uh, episode's drink of choice. Huge Arker. Check it out when you can. And for this episode's Christmas metal moment, we're going to pick up the theme of the Bethlehem Candle. And what other song could you go with here other than Oh Little Town of Bethlehem? But to make it metal, we're going to have to go with Zach Wilde and the Black Label Society, uh, his uh, toned down but still totally metal version of Oh Little Town of Bethlehem. We had a chance, my friends Lenny and Chris and I had a chance to see Black Label Society in Seattle in March of 2020, literally right before the whole world shut down for COVID. Uh, Seattle was a hot spot at the time, and we didn't quite realize how serious that was all going to be. Mercifully, we were in a room of a thousand people at the very front, right at the stage. Uh, we had a killer time and somehow escaped without uh, getting any sort of sickness or anything. And Zach Wilde and Black Little Society killed it. However, they did not play this Christmas tune because it was only March. So to remind you that our king came humbly, he came to a little town called Bethlehem. He didn't come as a big shot, and he came as a humble servant. To remind you of that, here's a little town in Bethlehem from Black Label Society. Yeah. 